So, I, yeah, you know I'm Stephen Reed, but that's probably all that you know about me. Uh, so I, perhaps I fill in a few uh, blanks for you. If this was a men's group talk, I do a men's group talk called Military, Money and Ministry. Military because I was a soldier. Uh, money because I was a businessman. And ministry because, hey, that's what I do now. Uh, I went quite late in life to Moreland's College down in Christchurch. And uh, then after a couple of years there, getting my diploma in theology, uh, went up to the Blackdown Hills for 10 years at Hemiok as their minister. And as I came to that, the end of that season, I knew it was time to change. And the door opened for me to become a half-time chaplain at Musgrove Park Hospital. That's an unusual step, because although I'm grey and old, I didn't think I was finished yet. And somehow to go into half-time ministry, on the surface, seemed to be wrong, but actually it was right, and I knew it was right, so I took it. But what that opened for me was, I'm also chaplain to 40 Commando, looking after the rear party. Uh, Of course, uh, they're gradually coming back now. Uh, I'm also chaplain to Six Rifles, which is our TA battalion for the West Country, covering from Glo- the five counties from Gloucestershire, Dorset, down. And I'm a volunteer mental health chaplain, because I want to learn about that. And I'm also part of the Somerset Army Cadet Force. So, you know, God knew what he was doing when he was saying, you go half-time. And the rest of it, just like the blanks were filled in. When I uh, uh, go and see patients... The one question I never ask them is, how are you? You know why? Because they'll tell you. It hurts here, I have the operation tomorrow, and they'll give you a rundown on their medical history, which, whilst is important, and for the last half a dozen people that have come along to his or her bedside, that's exactly what they wanted to hear, how you're feeling in your physical being. I'm kind of not there for that purpose, and I've spent many a half an hour listening to the history of a patient when really I want to look at the broader issues. So I've had to come up with questions which sort of bypass the physical. And this might be helpful for you too. Because when you came in this morning, we, we, we tend to say, how are you today? And you go, fine. Because neither you or I want to get into any sort of deeper conversation than that. That's quite normal, isn't it? The fact that fine means fed up insecure, neurotic, and everything is wrong is beside the point. But, you know, I don't ask people how they are. I ask them questions like, what's on your mind today? Because all of us have got something on our mind. And if you're in hospital and you're feeling quite vulnerable and you need some support, maybe what's uppermost in your mind is is the issue that I've come to perhaps help you with. Another question is, uh, what brings you joy? What's your passion? What brings you joy? Now, on the surface, that seems a very easy question, but what really does bring you joy and passion? What's your passion? So for the next one minute, I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and just talk about that amongst yourselves and say, what brings me joy? What's my passion? Why don't you do that? I know there's three there, but, you know, I know who Rob's passion is. She's over here. Okay, just take some time thinking about that. Okay. 
I'm sure you're getting much more out of this than what I'm about to say. But that's, uh, that's okay. All right. Let's bring that to close. But it is helpful, you know, sometimes if you want a meaningful conversation with someone, what's on your mind or what brings you joy? Actually, what brings you joy? That's a great question to ask. You know, hey, how are you doing today? And as you go on, you know, what's it, what brings you joy? What's bringing you passion? What's your current passion? What you're into? And uh, just an insight into uh, the ministry. As I was driving down here this morning, I, I, my prayer is always that somebody gets this. In other words, what I'm going to say this morning, somebody actually takes it, carries it away with them, and it's meaningful to them. And as I, as I drove down the road, God said, you need it. What you're about to say, you need, because actually it's about passion for God. And I think any, any of us would welcome the stoking of that fire a little bit in our hearts, having a, a greater passion uh, for God. Now, as a pastor... Uh, I've often been called upon to, 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 to speak with people, individuals, who are going through some really difficult times and to hear this story, discuss the options and uh, realize that prayerfully all we can do is wait for God. And so we pray. And I think we've just parked it and, and that's what we've agreed to do. So I ring a couple days later and say, just to see how the person, how are you doing? How are you coping? Oh, well, we've decided to do this, and we're just going to hope for the best. Now, besides feeling that that's been a bit of a waste of my time, it just underlines for me how I play, and I include myself in this, lip service to faith. When the going gets tough, we make pretty well our own decisions. Now, Often that can be right, don't get me wrong, because God does give us wisdom and understanding and insight, and we do need to use that. But when the situation is intractable, seemingly, and only a miracle will help, how quick we pray and then rush to judgment, desperate to make a decision to feel that I've done something about the situation. And so I pray and I run, as it were, and God, as it were, gulps at my... With, with incredulity, uh, you know, the ink is hardly dry on the prayer, the words are hardly spoken, and God is obviously considering his options, but he needn't bother because you've already made a decision and you're rushing off to deal with it. Now, I like to point my finger in every direction, including my own, because I'm as guilty as that as anyone else. And it will come uh, in the passage that we read. We'll see about the guy's who made some judgments about their own situation. <coughs> the natural and the strongest passion for man is to solve our problems. To be uh, grief-free, to be free of trouble. And I think sometimes when we go that route, we're looking for a plan to follow rather than a person to trust. And believe me, I've been, the, I've been there as much as anyone else in this room. I'm looking for a plan to follow rather than a person uh, to trust. The question is, is Christ, 
Christianity to you and me simply a plan for a better life? Is it about, is faith about being pain free? In a sense, an easy ride, a joyous existence, a brilliant end, or maybe at the bottom line, a fire, ins- a fire insurance policy. Is this biblical faith, true biblical faith? Am I living biblically? Are you living biblically? Because we know that good living doesn't necessarily guarantee a continuous stream of blessing. And I'm going to give you some water. Where have you got some there? Oh, you're okay. Sorry. Don't apologize. It's okay. I didn't want you to suffer, that's all. No, good living doesn't guarantee a continuing, continuous stream of blessing. But what it does guarantee of something of greater value, and that is a relationship. That is a relationship. And what I'm speaking about when I talk about passion is what we treasure the most. And God has given us the gift of his son, Jesus, and he's saying to us, treasure him. Make him everything to you. Make him your passion. When issues and difficulties and challenges arise... Our solving mechanism gets into action, doesn't it? We've got to solve, especially men. We've got to solve it. We've got to fix it. <clears throat> We're a bunch of fixers. But what God is saying is to the greatest encouragement to Him, if if His heart is to be encouraged at all by us, is to see through what it is that's facing us toward God. Inviting him to be part of that challenging, difficult, sometimes ridiculous journey that we're on. Not just looking for a way out, but looking for God in where we're at. We must discover or recover our passion for God. I don't think we'll ever live fully, completely, being satisfied in the life that we have unless we have that passion for the Lord. I guess it's going to be like this. We're going to get to glory and we'll have a hoop and a holler and we'll be excited and we'll see the Lord and it'll be fantastic. And then the Lord will sort of unfold for us how it should have been, maybe. Not in a kind of finger-wagging sort of way, but saying, actually, this is how it should have been, a little bit more than it was. If you had found the passion for me, something would have developed perhaps differently. And so it makes sense to find a passion for God because eter- this is like a practice run for eternity. When, we, when we're in glory, we'll, we'll be in, we won't have to, quite, 
to discuss passion because our passion is there right in front of us to enjoy. So perhaps now is the uh, training ground for us to discover him in a measure which makes him our passion, our joy. Maybe. Maybe this is like, yeah, a training ground. Okay. Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas. I say that because I have no idea who the other person was, but why shouldn't it be Mrs. Cleopas? Because we know one of them was Mr. Cleopas, because it says so. And the other one could have. And, you know, it's okay for women to be disciples. Is that right? It's okay. Now, they weren't part of the Twelve, because we know the Twelve, don't we? But there were, we understand, around 240-ish believers around that group at the time of uh, the Easter time 2,000 years ago. And so they would have uh, understood a lot of what was going on. These two would have understood that the tomb was empty. These two would have heard the women, notice it was the women who first saw Jesus, when we're thinking about women bishops and all that stuff, the resurrected Christ, um, they heard that self-same report that they'd met the risen Lord. So in terms of the knowledge that they had, they had it all. It's a bit like, I, I quite like novels. I'm into John le Carre spy stuff because I kind of grew up in that. I was in the intelligence corps when I was in the army and I was in West Germany as it was then. So I, I love, John le Carre suits me. I, I feel that I'm in that era. And uh, it's like getting to, if it's a 50-chapter book, you get to chapter 49 and you don't read the last chapter. It's like, I won't be bothered to find out what actually happened. Having heard all that they knew, these guys didn't wait around to see how it works out. It's a bit like, you know, a BBC television crew turns up to a major story and it's just about to break and they go, I think we'll go now. That would be, we, we wouldn't believe that, would we? They would stay to find out what had happened at the end so that they could file the story and get it off on to BBC News 24. And so we find it incredible that Mr. and Mrs. Cleopas or Cleopas and Fred, whoever it is, decided with all the knowledge that they had to leave Jerusalem. I find that a little bit strange, don't you? And, but before I kind of point the finger and say, because if I'd have been there, it would all, be, all been different. You know, we, we've got this 40-40, is it 40-40 hindsight, 20-20? I don't know, whatever it is. You know, we look back and go, I would have believed the Lord. If I'd have seen Jesus, I'd have said, there's a son of God and all that stuff. I, I do question whether I'd be that, that spiritual. So I, I don't want to, as it were, be overcritical. But these guys didn't stay to see how the story went, how it all worked out. And they did a runner. Mm. 
So ignorance was their traveling companion. I said that we sometimes look for a plan to live with rather than a person to know. And I think it's probably true to say that Cleopas and Fred, whoever it was, saw Jesus as prophet and teacher. But they hadn't seen him in terms of who he really was. God the Son. And that is the difference between believing and non-believing, isn't it? It's about who we see Jesus as. Jesus is critical. Our knowledge of Jesus, who we decide Jesus is, is about salvation. It's about the true life-changing experience. Anyone watch the TV last night? No, you didn't. You're all in your Bibles. I know. Okay. But I was watching the TV last night. And I watched that program quite late on, which is quite disturbing about people praying for the sick in America. Did you get that program? Did anyone see that? Oh, okay. Well, I, won't, I, won't, I can't use that as a, an example, really, because I thought most of you might have watched it. It was quite disturbing. We have incredible amounts of wonderful theological information. We have the Bible. We have tapes. We have CDs. We have uh, videos. We have the World Wide Web. There's never been a time in human history where so much information, good information, some of it questionable, has been available. But does that make us uh, more spiritual? It can do. Does it make us more passionate about God? It can do. But with all that information and knowledge, what we have to be aware of is that God is always looking for one thing. And I hope that's what we're looking for too, and that's a relationship. Not somebody who's Uh, there just in case we have a particular problem. Maybe we're looking for a plan to live by rather than a person to know. But there's good news. If that's how we have been and we acknowledge that and I acknowledge that in my own heart from, from my own experience, things can change. Now what excites me about this passage is that what Jesus thinks about everyday man or or woman. These two are not apostles, but everyday disciples who momentarily lost their way. They have not understood yet the full implications of who Jesus is. Did not wait for Jesus to appear. Did not even wait to check on the unfolding events of the day. Listen to what it says in verse 23 to underline the fact that they knew that there was an empty tomb and that people had seen visions of angels. It says, they, the ladies, didn't find his body. They came to us and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Here they, they are admitting to this amazing knowledge that there's been a resurrection and yet they still chose to leave. Incredible, incredible. 
And so, and what we understand from their reactions to Jesus when he joins them on the journey is that they are so downcast, so disillusioned, that they actually don't recognize him <clears throat> at all. In fact, throughout the following uh, continuing walk, the, 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 the sitting down in their household at Emmaus, they didn't recognize him until the very end. I want to make some points this morning to help us. My first point is this. If you are a common man, as I am, and have the capacity for becoming disillusioned from time to time, but you have a hope that Jesus could be the one to redeem you, then take heart. Jesus is with you on the journey. I believe Jesus enters into our lives at the moment when everything seems failure and disappointment. And I think that the Emmaus Road is the classic picture of the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep and going after the lost one or two because he cares for the sheep. Jesus says in John 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, are you coming to Jesus? Anyone coming to me, I will never cast you out, never drive you away. So my point would be, Jesus does and will join us on the journey. Join us on the journey. My second point is, don't give up. These disciples had seen a lot. They had been led, presumably by Jesus, over a period of time. They've heard his teaching. They were convinced that he was from God and had the capacity to fulfill their great dreams and the promises of Israel. Having seen all that, they did not wait. They gave up, perhaps. They didn't wait for the promise of Jesus, which was the resurrection. They didn't wait for the promise of God, which was the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Many of us have seen in our day miracles of salvation, of changed lives. We have, many of us have seen miracles of healing. I've seen some incredible undoubtable miracles of healing. Because the kingdom of God does break out from time to time. I don't understand why one person will be healed and another won't be. I've ne- I, can't, I don't know. I don't get it. But I always know to pray. And because I've seen sufficient healing, it encourages me and others to continue to pray for the sick. And yet having seen those miracles of salvation, having seen the miracles of healing, how soon we forget in the midst of our challenges and life, all that life throws at us, how soon we forget how good is God, how good is the Lord. Thank God for Xboxes, whatever that is. <laughs> I, know, I don't have children, so forgive me. I, am, I know it's some sort of, is it a PlayStation, is that thing? Is that the same thing? Oh, okay. Don't give up. Sometimes we give up just before God moves in. It's got to be about his timing. So my, my third point is, wait for the Lord. Wait for God's deliverance. 
don't give up on the Lord's help. The Bible says it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Of course, the word salvation isn't just about a place in heaven. It's about the whole provision of God. God says, uh, my righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. That's Isaiah 51. David says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. He also says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. That final phrase, in his word I put my hope, gives me my fourth point. Ignorance is not a good traveling companion. How often have you done this, or perhaps only once, where you and your wife or your husband, you've left home in a car to go and visit someone. And, okay, it's me driving, and I say to Hazel, and by the way, she's doing music in our church in Taunton today. And I say, so where does Fred live? And she says, I thought you knew. Help yourself. Okay. What did you do at Fivehead? I brought the Ministry of Cough to Fivehead. <laughs> oh, another one. <laughs> Why don't we all just clear it out now? <laughs> that's it. Okay, that's it. Oh dear. Okay. Ignorance is not a good traveling companion. And when Jesus addressed these two disciples, it was to break them for a lack of knowledge of the scriptures. What is it? Uh, Nicky Gumbel used to say that the scriptures were a manual for life. And uh, don't be like me, i.e., me. You know, we had a new dishwasher the other day put it in, stick it all on, do it all, and it didn't work. And I thought, I'll tell you what I'll do. She, no, Hazel said it, actually. Why don't you read the manual? It's probably a good idea. But men, it's, it's a, come on, you know, men don't read manuals, do we? You know, do it yourself, uh, put yourself furniture together, let's get amongst it, take it out of the box, but, oh, this will fit for that. And then there's this bit hanging on the end at the end, and you think, that shouldn't be there. And so you have to take it all apart again, because when you read the manual, you didn't do it right. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> And so we, we need his great encouragement. Besides being the resurrected Christ standing before them, he said, I'll tell you what you should do is read the Johnny book. The scriptures they had available to them. And uh, I, I remember being a bit, I was in the army, as I said, I was at a Bible weekend in Germany. And you can tell how down I was. I was really fed up, you know, uh, and I, I, I was speaking afterwards to somebody. It was actually the preacher came up. And uh, I said, I, I'm really having a problem. I said, I, I just have an issue about God's love for me. And he said, what's, actually, what's that in your hand? I said, my Bible. He said, well, read it and find out. At the time, it might have appeared quite hard, but actually it was just what I needed. I needed to get back in the Word and re-established because the word is spiritual. It's not words on a page, although it appears like it. It's actually God-breathed word. And as you, as you know, because you've done it, as you read it, your spirit, it's like having a good meal, isn't it? Your spirit just begins to feed on what God is showing you out of his word. So that's the fourth point. Really... I'm looking up for a clock, but there isn't one there. 
Um, we've been looking at how we may discover or rediscover a passion for God. Not seeing him only as a way out of life situations, but one with whom we may work through in order to have a deeply fulfilling relationship with him. My first point was, if you're a common man like me, then take heart, Jesus is with you on the journey. My second and third points were trust and wait for God's deliverance. My fourth point is that we may know God through the pages of the Bible, basic stuff I know. And my fifth point is this. The start point for our discovery or rediscovery of our passion for Christ probably would take us right back to 2,000 years ago and being at the foot of the cross. Because it's, as we read, and it's on the page there in front of you or on the screen, that no, there was no recognition of Jesus until he broke the bread. And it's the knowledge that God has invested in us, the life and death of his most prized possession, shall we say, his son, and that he was willing to give him completely, even to death, should impact us in a way that will stir, again, fresh passion for, for God. And we might even, I might even find myself going back to that place at the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I continue to miss it. I continue to miss the fact that my overarching purpose in life is to know you as well as I'm known by you and to rekindle and have a passion for you. To have a passion for you. The cross is the place of God's love. It's the place of his forgiveness and his provision. It's truly a phenomenal landmark of God's love for each one of us. It's not how we start out that's important. Some of us have some pretty rocky backgrounds. I'm sure your testimonies would just reveal to us how difficult the challenges of life have been. I think it's not so much how we start out. It's how we finish. And let me remind us that we finish gloriously. We finish gloriously. You can imagine that as a hospital chaplain, I will be with people at their end. And people with Christian hope, it seems to magnify at that time. They seem to be... Jesus, if there was any time in the journey that Christ needed to come alongside a human being, surely it's then. And people who come with Christian hope, you can see it. If I, if I, if I needed encouragement, and I do, it's that moment I find encouragement because I see the faith of that person. And, and it's increasing, it's magnifying because at that time of the journey, Christ knows that how we are and how we need him and how we need the sense of his presence more than perhaps at any other time in our lives. I'll finish with the sixth point. <clears throat> a sixth point. 
They might have walked to Emmaus, but they ran to Jerusalem, didn't they? Wouldn't you? Because let's face it, if you've, got, if you've got information or knowledge that you have, you want to share it, don't you? Do you remember when you got saved? Most of us were desperately happy. That doesn't go together to desperately and happy, does it? No, we were very happy, and we just wanted to tell somebody because our lives had been changed and Jesus had met us. And they'd met the risen Christ, and they ran back, and they burst. You can imagine, uh, I did have a video clip, but we couldn't make it work, So, of, of them coming together in that room and sharing, we've seen the risen Christ. And, and what I would leave you with is, share your story. You have precious knowledge in your own heart and minds about your own journey, your ups and your downs, the way God delivered you, the, main, the way he made you wait, the time you ran when you should have stopped, the time you should have trusted when you didn't. Share those stories because there's one thing for sure. We need to hear each other and we need to carry that precious knowledge of our own walk with God with other people. With other people. I, I trust you're getting this. I think I'm getting some of it myself. I wonder what it'll... In 130 years' time, do you think will, any of this will be meaningful? Well, mostly, that I guess we'll be in glory, and who cares anyway? But, you know, I was looking up here. Mr. and Mrs. Stodgell. We're still celebrating them, aren't we? Do, do you know the Stodgels, by the way? Can I introduce you to the Stodgels? They, they I think they must have planted the, the Baptist work in this area. I want to pray that even in 130 years' time, something of what I've said today will have been meaningful and helpful and restored something of the passion you may have for Christ. And hopefully it didn't turn you off. <laughs>